Hello everyone, this is Daniel from the Particular Baptist Podcast. In this episode, our brother Andrew Warwick brings us a lesson from Covenant Reformed Baptist Church in Warrington, Virginia, given on October 2nd on the state of Israel during the first Advent. I hope it is beneficial and encouraging as well as instructive. Thank you. It is 9.30 and we're going to get started here. We got a lot of material to cover, so we're just going to rush right into it. Apologize, this one's not going to be quite as interactive as I would have otherwise liked because we have so much material. Huh? Not on. There we go. All right. All right, we're going to get started, everybody. So let's open up with a word of prayer. Father God, I thank you so much for this Lord's Day that you provided for us, that you've been faithful for providing for us, for us to gather together as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, to learn from your word, to hear the preaching of our pastor in the coming service, and to uh, enjoy this time of equipping. Uh, I ask that you bless this study, that you'd help us to understand the historical background of when Christ entered the world, and we'd appreciate your work and your providence throughout all of history leading up to that moment, the fullness of times. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So this is part two of the study we began last week, dealing with the historical background of, that led up to the advent of our Lord. Uh, there's going to be some repetition uh, from last time, but that's, that's all right, because we want to reinforce these things in our minds uh, as we go into church history proper. So... With all that said, we're going to get right to it. we got a lot of material to cover here. Um, and we're going to start with our first question, which is, what was the world like when the Christian faith began about 2,000 years ago? And in answer to that question, I'm going to start us off with a somewhat lengthy quote from the scriptures. Uh, this is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed, and the bounds of their habitation. That they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him, and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being, as certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. So, that, were, that passage there, I think, gives us a great picture of the world at the time of Christ. In other words, it was a world shrouded by pagan darkness. God had set up the nations, given them their bounds so that they could seek after God. But he's testified more than sufficiently that even the best and brightest of them, if left to themselves without the grace of God, would never find him. The best of the brightest of them became idolaters. They began worshiping the things of their own hands and 
thinking that God was like the things of their hands, even though he made all those things. Oh, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So if even the wise fell into such idolatry, how, how much was the idolatry of the world at the time? How great was the darkness of the Gentile pagan world before the advent of Jesus Christ? At this point in time, the only nation not left in darkness altogether was the nation of Israel, to whom were committed the oracles of God. Yet even they had not been faithful to the light they had received, but as we shall see, they split up into various factions competing for authority, some of which openly denied cardinal doctrines like the resurrection from the dead. And others were filled with such religious pride that they not only thought they had sufficiently fulfilled the commands to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your might and your neighbor as yourself. They not only thought that they had fulfilled these so sufficiently to earn their way to heaven, but they thought that their man-made list of outward superficial acts of religious obedience fulfilled them. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But thankfully, the scriptures say, the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, which are tribes of Israel, by the way of the sea beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light was sprung up. Matthew chapter 4, 15 through 16. So to both Jew and non-Jew alike, Christ would come and shine light. And would and God would no longer leave them in that ignorance that we saw, like he justly did for so long. But out of sheer mercy, he has risen up a mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This lesson will largely be about the dark world that existed before Christ came to shine upon them, with the two key players being the Roman Empire and Israel. My hope in this study is that it will cause us to better appreciate God's mercy to a lost world, expanding out of the nation of Israel to encompass the entire globe, and to see the wisdom of God's providence in guiding even secular history for what the Bible calls the fullness of times. So, to get into that history more properly, We'll go to question two, which is when and how did Rome and the Jews first made contact? We, we briefly covered this last time. This occurred in 161 BC when the Jews sought the help of the Romans to help liberate them from the Seleucid Empire who was subjugating them at the time. And that's when they first made contact with the Roman Empire. So this rebellion against the Seleucid Empire, uh, does anybody know the name of it? Does anybody know the name of that rebellion? It's, it's called the Maccabean Rebellion. If that name sounds familiar, that's where the books of First and Second Maccabees get their name from. Those are apocryphal books. They're not scripture, but they're useful history. Uh, and it explains some of what occurred during the intertestamental era. It's from about 400 BC to uh, roughly 40 to 50 AD. Um, and it's also where the Jewish ho uh, holiday of Hanukkah comes from, from the Maccabean, Maccabean uh, Rebellion. It's ironic, however, that Rome's first interaction with the Jews was to help liberate them from an empire subjugation, but then the Roman Empire would be the one who ultimately subjugated and destroyed the Jewish nation altogether. There's some heavy irony behind that. So next question, though, is who is Pompey the Great? Well, Pompey the Great was a Roman general uh, known for his military prowess and for fighting against Julius Caesar in the Civil War before Rome reorganized as an empire. So he was the leader of the conservative Republican faction of that civil war, and his defeat would help make way for the empire to form afterwards. He, he was known for such brutality that early on he earned, earned the nickname of the teenage butcher. It had nothing to do with meat shops. But for the purpose of our study, 
we look at him because when he interfered in the Jewish Civil War in favor of Hierakonis and his party, the result of that was the placement of Judea under the supervision of the Roman governor of Syria, and it began to on undermine their political autonomy. So that was in 66 BC. So that's question four in your handout. 66 BC is when the Jewish Civil War began. And it was also around the time that Pompey the Great emerged victorious in the Third Mithridatic War. Mithridatic War? I don't know how you pronounce that. Um, it was fought between Hyrcanus and his brother Aristobulus, who were competing for the throne of Judea. Um, so Hyrcanus had served as a high priest and actually briefly as a king, too, before the Civil War. And he resumed the office of high priest afterwards. But he wouldn't resume the office of king because after Pompey interfered on his behalf to help him win the war against his brother Aristobulus, uh, he didn't allow him to take the title of king. He gave him political authority, but like we said, uh, Judea became under the supervision of the Roman governor of Syria, and he wouldn't let him take the, the title of king, um, which we shouldn't be surprised that that intermingling between the priesthood of Aaron and the, the, uh, the kingship of Judah, they, they those offices didn't go together for very long because there, there's no prophecy of that happening, of, of someone from the priesthood of Aaron uh, taking the throne. But that would be reserved for the one who's after the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so God didn't allow that kind of situation to last for very long. Uh, question number five, uh, who is Herod Antipater? Herod Antipater, he's also known as Herod the Great, and he was the Jewish king placed on the throne by the Romans around the year 36 BC, which marked an end to the autonomous succession of kings. Um, he was essentially a vassal king appointed to do the bidding of the Roman Empire. Uh, he was a Jew, but he was of Edomite descent. Herod, uh, Herod the Great was a ruthless king who was so afraid of the coming Messiah taking away his political power that he ordered the slaughter of all the infants of Bethlehem under two years old when he heard from the wise men uh, that the Messiah was about to be born. Uh, so Herod himself, though, would die shortly after he ordered that massacre, which I think is also interesting. It shows you the folly of man trying to thwart the purposes of God. Not only was he not able to slay the Messiah, but he wouldn't even live long enough to see the Messiah take his throne to, de to deplace him. Um, when God says something will come to pass, it will come to pass. We can be assured. <clears throat> Question number six. Who is Herod Antipas? Hope these names don't get confusing. Uh, Herod Antipas was the son of Herod Antipater, Antipater, and the Herod that we read about during the earthly ministry of our Lord. So don't get those two confused. Um, he is responsible for the execution of John the Baptist, and he mocked Christ when he was sent to him, and he sent him back to Pontius Pilate, who would ultimately crucify him. Jesus rightly called him a fox. He reigned until Emperor Caligula deposed him in 39 AD, and he was succeeded by his nephew, Herod Agrippa, who is mentioned in Acts 12. So those are the three Herods that we see in the Bible, Herod Antipater, or Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, and Herod Agrippa, the Herodian dynasty. So that's question six, but before moving to question seven, there's another event I wanted us to cover today, which uh, our brother Nita mentions in his book. And that's the Jewish rebellion of 680, which is led by Judah the Galilean, who uh, was most likely the founder of the Zealots. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 5. Um, Gamaliel, who was the tutor of the Apostle Paul, mentions Judah the Galilean when he's listing men who 
tried to start movements, but they failed because they were just movements of men and not movements of God. Um, he says of him that Judah in the days of the taxing rose up and he drew away much people after him. He also perished and all, even as many obeyed him, were dispersed. Acts 5.37. As a consequence of this rebellion, Rome felt threatened by Judea. So they placed them under direct Roman rule at this point and became a mere province of Rome. They so thoroughly lost their independence in government that they could no longer even apply capital punishment, which is why in the Gospels we see the Jews sending Christ off to Pontius Pilate because they didn't have the authority to crucify him. They lost their sovereignty to such a great degree they could not apply capital punishment, and they had to rely on the Gentiles to do it for them. Oh, and again, this is an area where we see God's providence working out. Look how, look how the church of um, Acts chapter 4 interprets Psalm 2. It says that they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. And here's their interpretation. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. What I want you to notice there is the psalm talks about why did the heathen rage, the, the Hebrew word is goyim, why did the heathen rage, and then the people imagine the vain thing, and they say of a truth the Gentiles and the people of Israel were risen up against the Lord and against your Messiah. So this was an, uh, a conspiracy of both Jew and Greek against the Messiah. And this is how the prophecy was fulfilled. It would have not been fulfilled in this way if God and his providence didn't take away the right capital punishment again, uh, away from the Jews at this time. Um, this way, all the world would become representatively guilty of the crucifixion of Christ, uh, Christ being put to death first by put, being put forth by the Jews and then executed by the Greek and then that salvation that would spring from that death would be to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Also, Judah being derived the right of capital punishment and being relegated to Roman province was when their scepter began to be taken away from them with finality until any sort of authority was fully abolished with the destruction of that nation in 70 AD, less than a century later. There's even a legend of disputed origin that the members of the Sanhedrin cried at this time around year 11 AD when they officially became a province woe unto us for the scepter has departed from judah and the messiah has not come well why would have they said that well because there's a prophecy in genesis 49 10 which says the scepter shall not depart from judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until shiloh come and unto him shall the gathering of the people be thankfully the shiloh the messiah came just in time for this prophecy to be fulfilled um so and this was, we must recognize this was a very unique situation for the nation of Israel. Even under the Babylonian captivity, we read the king of Babylon in 2 Kings uh, setting the throne of the king of Judah above the thrones of all other kings, but not so here. So the prophecy might truly be fulfilled at this time. All right, so next three questions uh, are concerning the identity of the sects of Judah that existed at the time, which are the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the zealots. There's also the Essenes, but we won't have time to cover them today. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a quick blurb on each of those three, um, plus a little bit of an excursus about one issue relating to the beliefs of the Sadducees. And then we're going to actually read from 
The only other real uh, contemporary source besides the New Testament, which is the works of Josephus. We'll read a somewhat lengthy quote from that, and I think that will be helpful for everybody. Um, but the first question is, who are the Sadducees? So the Sadducees were the Jewish elites of the days of the New Testament and would have been the primary party represented at the Sanhedrin, which tried the Lord. Uh, we, we, also, we read in Acts 5.17, it, it says that the high priests and those with him were the sect of the Sadducees. So these were the religious authorities. These were the chief priests and the scribes of the New Testament days. In their doctrine, they're chiefly distinguished for denying the resurrection. And there's an old joke that might help us remember that. Um, it, it goes, why, why are they called Sadducees? It's because they didn't believe in life after death. So they were sad, you see. <laughs> If some of you heard that a thousand times, I apologize. Um, it's good. It's helpful, right? <laughs> so, but in addition to denying the resurrection, Acts 23, 8 tells us that they neither believed in angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confessed both. So they were very, very close to just pure materialists. They believed in God, but not much else. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in spirits. They're essentially the liberal religious elite of their day um it, it's now to get to our a little excursus here another area that's that's often said that distinguishes them is that they had an incomplete old testament canon um and this was surprising to me in my study because i always thought that was true but the new testament and our contemporary authority never actually said that they had an incomplete canon at any point and uh looking into the debates it seems like that's not even necessarily the majority view about what the Sadducees believed. And after weighing the argument, I think the better case can be made that they did, in fact, hold to a complete Old Testament canon. The first sources that say that they didn't believe in the rest of the Old Testament were the late second slash early third century writers, Hippolytus and Origen. But they said this after whatever remained of the Sadducees had merged with the Samaritans to the north. Because remember, they were decimated after 70 AD. They, their whole identity was the chief priests and scribes of Judah, and once that nation was destroyed, they had nowhere to go. They merged with the Samaritans, it seems, to the north. Um, and both of those writers, when they talk about this, uh, explicitly couple them with the Samaritans. I think one says that the, the Sadducees of Samaria, and the other one says the Sadducees and the Samaritans. Um, but the Samaritans, we know for sure, only had the first five books of the Old Testament, because remember, these are the apostate northern Israel tribe that separated from Judea very early on before the codifying of most of the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. So they only had the first five books of Moses in a corrupt form known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. And so it makes sense that after they merged with them, that they would only also hold to those first five books. Another argument in favor of them not having a complete canon is that simply they denied the resurrection and the rest of the books are so clear about that. Like we might think of Daniel chapter 12, which is very explicit about the resurrection. But we must remember they also denied angels and spirits. And the books of Moses are also quite explicit about those, especially angels. You see angels all the time in the uh, Pentateuch. So I don't think that's sufficient reason for saying they must have uh, cast out the rest of the Old Testament. I think a better explanation is that they just had a very strange, non-literal, allegorical way of interpreting the Old Testament scriptures. So they, they didn't believe in a literal resurrection like those commoners did, those, those hillbillies out in backwaters of Judea. They're the sophisticated tribe, the religious elites. Remember, they're liberals. 
<laughs> Sorry, yeah, but just like the liberals of today. Exactly. The Bible. They think about and that's and that's how they interpret it. And you know, nothing's new under the sun, right? <laughs> so that that's my opinion that that makes sense of that. Um, and also we must remember the resurrection can be found in the first five books of Moses. That's what Jesus quotes from when he proves the doctrine. And I don't think that's an accommodation to their canon. I think that's him saying, hey, this truth is so basic. If you just look at how God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you'd know that there's life beyond death. These men were long dead, but he says, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But in favor of them not holding, uh, not denying the rest of the Old Testament uh, are the facts that, uh, one, as we saw, there's none of the contemporary sources mention that, even though they both go into detail, especially Josephus, about some of the things that distinguish their doctrine. And that'd be a weird doctrine to not mention. Um, but beside that are the facts that as the priestly class, as the chief priests, they would have been the ones responsible for laying up the, the scrolls of the Old Testament in the temple, which is how they marked the canon. And we knew that that we know that that includes the entirety of the Old Testament revelation, not just the five books of Moses. Uh, and the other thing, which I think is even more of a smoking gun, is in Matthew chapter two, Herod Antipater, who does he consult when he's asking about the birth of Messiah? If you read the passage, he, he consults the, the scribes and the chief priests who were the fair, who were the not the Pharisees, they were the Sadducees. He was consulting the Sadducees about the birth of the Messiah. And what do they quote from? They quote from Malachi, it's the book of the prophets, and they quoted authoritatively. So I think the better uh, explanation is that they, they did in fact hold to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures. So, so much for the Sadducees. Now I'm going to briefly brush through the Pharisees and Zealots, and then we'll read some from Josephus. So the Pharisees were the much more numerous and popular uh, sect of, of the Jews than the Sadducees. Uh, and they're more orthodox when it came to the above issues. They, they believed in the resurrection, angels and spirits, as we already already read. But they were also the quintessential legalists, and they, they highly value their oral tradition, which the Lord rebukes them uh, for. And we'll see more of their issues later. Christ, in fact, has some of the strongest words he gives to any group. He reserves it against the Pharisees. Read Matthew 23 if you don't believe me. All right, question number nine. Who are the zealots? The zealots are not mentioned by name often in the New Testament, but it does appear that one of the 12, Simon, was formerly one. He was called Simon the Zealot. Um, they were known as insurrectionists who refused to submit to the Roman government and perhaps actually any authority. And um, to get into more of all that, I think it's a good time to open up Josephus. So if you don't know who Josephus is, Josephus is the great Jewish historian of the first century. He lived to see the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, and he has a remarkable corroboration of everything that we read in the New Testament, including who our Lord was. Uh, so... And I wanted to read from this because, one, it's fascinating to see what the other source of uh, authority we have for knowing who these groups were. Because otherwise, it's, it's we just have the New Testament and also what Josephus has and really not much else. So once you read this, you've heard pretty much all of it. And also because in his description of it, you can see how the Old Testament was indeed doing its work in its people. Uh, because these groups, they all had their own perversions, their own errors that they had. But each of them had some truth of the Old Testament scriptures that they held to in distinction from the others, which you can see being preserved through Christ and the church that he would establish. So this, I think it's a remarkable testimony that, hey, the New Testament uh, ethic and way of life and its truths is 
a real really does flow and emerge from the old testament scriptures and is derived and even carnal men could see some of those truths at the time so comparing your minds some, some of the things these groups teach with um what christ himself teach and then see where they err as well so this is from book 18 of the jewish antiquities uh, chapter one begin with paragraph three now for the pharisees they live meanly and despise delicacies and diet and they follow the conduct of reason and what that prescribes to them as good for them they do and they think they are earnestly to strive to observe reason's dictates for practice they also pay a respect to such as are in years, nor are they so bold as to contradict them in anything which they have introduced. And when they determine that all things are done by fate, they do not take away the freedom from men of acting as they think fit, since their notion is that it hath pleased God to make a temperament whereby what he wills is done, but so that the will of man can act virtuously or viciously. They also believe that souls have an immortal vigor in them, and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life, and the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but that the former shall have power to revive and live again, on account of which doctrines they are able greatly to persuade the body of the people. And whatsoever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they perform them according to the direction, insomuch that the cities gave great attestations to them on account of their entire virtuous conduct, both in the actions of their lives and their discourses also. That was the Pharisees. But the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies, nor do they regard the observation of anything besides what the law enjoins them. For they think it an instance of virtue to dispute with those teachers of philosophy whom they frequent. But this doctrine is received but by a few, yet by those still of the greatest dignity. But they are able to do almost nothing of themselves. For when they become magistrates, as they are unwillingly and by force sometimes obliged to be, they addict themselves to the notions of the Pharisees, because the multitude would not otherwise bear them. You see that with liberals today, too, you're kind of master doctrines. Sometimes it's like you dive really deep because the people won't bear them otherwise. And then he goes on the Essenes, but again, we won't cover them for sake of time. So the fourth sect of Jewish philosophy, uh, Judas the Galilean was the author. These men agree in all other things with the Pharisaic notions, but they have an inviolable attachment to liberty they, and say that God is to be their only ruler and Lord. They also do not value dying any kind of death, nor indeed do they heed the deaths of their relations and friends, nor can any such fear make them call any man Lord. And since this immovable resolution of theirs is well known to a great many, I shall speak no farther about that matter, nor am I afraid that anything I have said of them should be disbelieved, but rather fear that what I have said is beneath the resolution they show when they undergo pain. And it was in Gessius's Florus's time that the nation began to grow mad with this distemper, who was our procurator, and who occasioned the Jews to go wild with it by the abuse of his authority and to make them revolt from the Romans. And these are the sects of Jewish philosophy. Very interesting stuff. Uh, I wanted to give a few observations about all of this. So one uh, concerning the Pharisees, the Pharisees rightly derive much doctrinal truth from the Old Testament, including what appears to be a form of compatibilism. Um, and if you don't know what compatibilism is, compatibilism is the idea that God is sovereign over all things, and yet we do have wills and we're responsible for our actions. Uh, they, they use the term fate, which we would rightly shirk from, but, but we see some true principles underlying what they're, what they're saying. They also, of course, rightly affirm eternal punishment of the wicked and the eternal blessedness of the righteous. 
But on the negative side, they add many things that simply are the traditions of men into the worship of God and have an undue reverence for whatever doctrine or practice emerges from any man who happens to be older than them. So they would not contradict anything that anybody older than them introduced in matters of, of doctrine or worship. Um, now, as to the Sadducees, Josephus is considerably more negative about them than the rest. But on the positive side, they do seem to have held to an uh, early form and somewhat of a twisted form of sola scriptura. Uh, this comes out even more clearly in Book 13 of the Antiquities of, that, of the same work, where Josephus said that they argued with the Pharisees, saying that, quote, we are to esteem those observances to be obligatory, which are in the written word, but are not to observe what are derived from the tradition of our forefathers, end quote. Uh, so... Unfortunately, though, as we already seen, they had a very weird interpretation of scripture, and they clearly neutered the actual force of it in many places. Josephus even seemed to suggest that one of the main reasons they held to sola scriptura is because they wanted to have as little doctrine, definitive doctrine surrounding them as possible, so they could dispute with as many philosophers as possible. Possible, and and we know the philosophers of those days definitely looked down on doctrines like the resurrection. That was a big point of dispute between the Christians and Greek philosophers later on. Uh, and every other thing, they're pretty much like the, like it's been said, the liberal religious leagues of their day. And then uh, the fourth group, again, skipping the third, uh, the, the zealots were rightly, uh, the zealots would have rightly refused to call Caesar Lord and possessed uh, Something analogous to the martyr spirit that we see prescribed by the New Testament when it comes to be willing to strive to the point of death for the faith. And yet they clearly became imbalanced in this and they challenged all lawful privileges of government altogether. But Jesus gives us the correct way. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. All right, so we're moving on to question 10 now. Uh, who is Philo of Alexandria? So this last question gives us a final example of both the truth and error that existed in the minds of the fallible men after the close of the Old Testament canon. Philo lived in Alexandria, Egypt at the turn of the first century and was a contemporary of our Lord. He lived in the center of worldly philosophy of the ancient world, and he engaged with it and was influenced, too, by much of it. Uh, he was also an early leader of the more haphazard form of allegorical interpretation that we see men like Clement of Alexandria and Origen engage in later. But on the other hand, he was undoubtedly a brilliant mind and his deep analysis of the Old Testament scriptures. In that deep analysis, he came pretty close to some profound truths that the New Testament lays out for us as being contained in the Old Testament. Uh, this is greatly illustrated by the quote provided by Brother Needham in his book, which comes from Philo's commentary on Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. I'm going to read that for us here. It's a short quote. The father of the universe has granted the office of mediator to his supreme messenger and most ancient word, who regulates matters between the creator and his creatures. The word is the intercessor on behalf of perishing mortals in relation to the unchangeable being. He is the ambassador of the sovereign to his subjects. The word glories in this gift and declares, I have stood between the Lord and you, for I am not unbegotten as God is, nor am I begotten as you are. But I stand in the middle of these extremes, pledging myself for both. I pledge to the creator that the human race shall not prefer chaos to beauty and fall entirely into ruin and apostasy. And I pledge to the creation that I will maintain the joyful hope that God in his mercy will not despise his own handiwork. 
For I announce the creation, God's message of peace, that he can purge away hostilities and is the perpetual preserver of peace. So obviously there's some error mixed up in all of that. There's even a tinge of universalism, uh, I think. But, but you see some things that are quite close to the truth that he gets at in that passage, understanding the word to be the mediator between God and man. And he says he's, he's not unbegotten, nor is he begotten in the same way that we are, but as we would say, begotten but not made. Uh, so he's, he's pretty close on some things. Uh, a lot of people credit this, however, to uh, the, the Greek ideas of the word or logos, as it's called in the Greek which Philo was undoubtedly influenced by, because he, he was influenced by much of Greek philosophy. But I, I actually think that this gives uh, a little too much credit to Greek philosophy on this point. I absolutely do believe that there's much that can be lean, learned from the light of nature about God, enough to condemn us, not enough to save us. Uh, but if you read Plotinus and his representative Neoplatonic philosophy, you're, you'll see that there are critical differences between the logos of Greek philosophy and the logos that Philo, Philo presents here. The logos of Greek philosophy does not stand between creator and creature, but is strictly a creature. The logos of Greek philosophy is also not so much of a mediator as he is a ladder. He's a necessary step for lower beings to climb up to what they call the one, but he doesn't condescend to them. He doesn't help them on their way up because he's too busy being enamored with the what they call the one than to help beings below them. They got to pick themselves up by their own bootstraps and make their up their way to the word and then to the one. That's their system of thought. But the logos of scripture, the word of scripture, however, in the, the word identified by Philo here, it's a logos of condescension. In the passage he's commenting on, the Logos is identified with the angel of the Lord. That's, that's what we have in the passage here. He's tying the word here with the angel of the Lord. Uh, who's that being in the Old Testament who's identified as God and yet distinct from God. Who is seen by men and yet we hear that no man can see God and live. It is he who exegetes God to the people. It is he who delivers them his word to Abraham, to the Jews at Mount Sinai, to Joshua. It is he who's always coupled with the word of God because he is the word of God. So however much Philo might have been influenced by a logos of philosophy, I believe it's corrected here by the logos of scripture to a large extent, which even then was visible to those who sought into these things from the Old Testament. Uh, because whatever superficial similarity there may be between a Greek logos and a biblical logos, it's destroyed by the radical dissimilarity between pride and humility. The pagan logos is a tool for the proud to be puffed up by their own effort. The true logos is grace to the humble who realize they are dead in their sin and can never climb up any celestial ladder to reach God. And whose only hope is to seek mercy and pardon at the hands of the word who came down for them and for their salvation, who with his own strength alone bears our penalty, bears the wrath for our sin, and by his own strength carries us up to God all by himself, the Holy One of Israel. What great light God has left for his people in these Old Testament scriptures and what great light has been pleased to reveal to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's our lesson. Do we have any comments and questions? We got through this a bit quicker than I thought we would. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, brother. Amen. Absolutely.
There's nothing new under the sun. The, the carnal tendencies of men were the same back then as they are today. Just different manifestations of them. All right, anything else? Yeah, the <clears throat> idea of numbers of Sadducees they're a much smaller sect according to Josephus here uh, they seem to not exist at all besides the elite the, it's, he says the multitude would not bear them. which again is the same today it's like that, your message isn't giving me any hope of life after death I know I need mercy and pardon at the hands of the mediator and you just give me the deadness of my body after I live what kind of comfort is that people know that's not true so it was a very small group it seems to me that they're the whole being is just running the temple. Yeah. Because that's where the money was. So I think that's a group of people that really have nothing to do with religion. Absolutely. I agree. All right. If there's no other comments, I'll focus in prayer. Father God, I do thank you for sending your only begotten Son to be our Savior, to be our mediator. Not a mediator of man's making, but of your own making, a stone carved without hands that will fill the whole earth. I ask that, Lord, that your kingdom would come in its full power, Lord, that even so come, Lord Jesus, and that you would bless our worship of you today. Help us to worship you with true hearts, true hearts of faith in spirit and in truth. Bless the pastor as he preaches us the word today. In Jesus' name. Excellent job. Thank you.